Welcome to Milius Forum Speaker Webinar Series. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Dr. Savante Cornell, Director of the American Foreign Policy Council's Central Asia Caucasus Institute and founder of the Institute for Security and Development Policy in Stockholm, join us to discuss the Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict, why it matters. Dr. Cornell will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Dr. Savante Cornell. Thank you very much, uh, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you at this event. And uh, it is a, uh, I'd like to thank the Middle East Forum for organizing. So what I've uh, been asked to do, and I will, what I'll try to do, is to, to uh, make a couple of quick remarks about the background and origins of this conflict, and also more specifically try to talk about why this is happening time and particularly we could obviously discuss the role that Turkey and Israel have uh, as well as you now um, I'd like to start by by noting that the, the resumption of war between Armenia and Azerbaijan at this point is not surprising I have been predicting it for a long time for example in a book published in 2017 called the international politics of the Armenian Azerbaijan conflict now, I wish I could say I was the only one to do that, but that would be a lie. A lot of people have been predicting the, uh, the, uh, the rise of tensions and the fact that this would eventually um, lead to free Syria. Now, if you want a very simple reason, um, I think the easy answer is that the power differential between Armenia and Azerbaijan is shifting too rapidly, and the regional and global geopolitics are getting too unstable uh, for the status quo to hold today. Now, if we back up and look at the roots of this conflict, the uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict emerged in the late 1980s in the Soviet period, primarily over the contested territory of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an ethnic Armenian, majority Armenian enclave inside Azerbaijan. Uh, and already in the late Soviet period, Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh wanted to be united with the Republic of Armenia, something the Soviet leadership, as well as the Republic of Azerbaijan uh, resisted. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, could you speak a little louder? We're having some trouble hearing you. Is this better? Perfect. Okay, sorry about that. So uh, this started essentially as a local conflict, uh, but with independence, it rapidly became a war between the two states. And almost immediately, there was a Russian intervention into the conflict, which largely supported Armenia against what was then a nationalist-led Azerbaijani Republic. Now, the problem in this conflict is that Ar Armenia, or rather by me, the problem, I mean the imbalance that's resulted in this conflict is the fact that Armenia is three times smaller than Azerbaijan. It lacks Azerbaijan's natural resources and Azerbaijan's geopolitical location. Still, Armenia won the war. And not only did it win the war, but it, and take control over Nagorno-Karabakh with about 150,000 population, but also seven adjoining provinces around Nagorno-Karabakh that were almost before the conflict completely populated by Azerbaijanis and about 700,000 people lived there. How this happened was really due to two factors. The first was the internal turmoil in Azerbaijan, as well as the Russian support for Armenia, coupled with some level of Iranian tacit assistance for Armenia. At that time, contrary to what has happened presently, Turkey sided with Azerbaijan, but because of NATO EU and the traditional Kemalist caution in Turkish foreign policy, Turkey decided not to intervene at that time. So the result of the conflict back in the 1990s, I would argue, 
is that Armenia bit off more than it could chew. Um, it took over so much territory that it became impossible for either the Azerbaijani leadership or for Azerbaijani society to somehow reconcile themselves with the way the conflict ended. Then Azerbaijan got rich with oil and at one point ended up spending more uh, on defense than the entire Armenian budget. Um, so this is what I mean by the uh, disparity of uh, between the two parties to this conflict increasing rapidly to an extent that was no longer sustainable. Something had to give unless there was a peaceful solution to the, to the conflict. And unfortunately, the international mediation failed completely to provide any perspective. Now, in the meantime, this has been going on again since the ceasefire first came into place in 1994. So for over for 25 years, this has been the situation. But the geopolitics surrounding the, the conflict in the two countries has changed a lot. Uh, you can see that, for example, in the different roles of Turkey and Israel. A lot of people uh, note that Israel and Turkey find themselves essentially on the same side in this conflict, both of them being important partners of Azerbaijan and purveyors of, of military equipment for Azerbaijan. Uh, but obviously, uh, this has its origin in the period back in the uh, late 1990s when Turkey and Israel had a very strong strategic alignment. And when both of them saw a value in the secular pro-Western Shia uh, majority Republic of Azerbaijan right on the Iranian border. Whereas on the other hand, uh, Russia and Iran supported Armenia uh, in order to stop or prevent Western and Turkish influence from spreading into the Caucasus and Central Asia. So in a way, uh, this conflict can be seen either as the contrary, if you will, of the Huntingtonian idea of a clash of civilization, or at least as an important exception to it, given the fact that Russia and Arme uh, Iran are backing one party and uh, Israel and Turkey are backing so it doesn't really make sense from those, should we call them simplistic understandings of regional geopolitics, things here are, are kind of complicated. Uh, what happened in the intervening year, among others, is that Turkey turned Islamist under Erdogan's rule and split with Israel. Azerbaijan has managed to maintain its very positive ties both with Turkey and with Israel, which hasn't always been easy. Particularly, Turkey has been critical of Azerbaijan's Israel relationships. But uh, the two countries are Azerbaijan's most important external backers. Now, one important question is why the war took place now. And I think there are several explanations for this. Uh, the first and broadest ones is that there has been, as many scholars have observed, a, a gradual uh, weakening of international norms and international institutions, and great powers today seem to do what they can get away with. Azerbaijan, in many ways, took uh, this lesson to heart. Uh, it had based its uh, efforts internationally on insisting that international law was on its side and that international and through international institutions get a negotiated solution that would get its occupied territories back. But if international law isn't working anymore, then why would you not try a military solution after 30 years of negotiations? That's, if you will, the broader systemic level explanation of, of why a war has been in, in the making. A second and very important reason that we see a war now is the change of the Turkish position, um, that in Turkey increasingly saw itself as part of the conflict. Now it's interesting to look for those that are interested in Turkey at why this happened. Because I, I would argue that there, this is a result of a shift in Turkish internal politics. We can talk more about this if, uh, if, uh, if attendees are interested. But I would submit that this is inherently not Recep type Erdogan's policy. If you see what Turkey is doing right now, which is picking fights with Greece and Cyprus and the Aegean, 
and having a totally uh, a much higher level of interest in, in development in the Caucasus and in the Black Sea region. This is the traditional priorities of Turkish nationalists, just like the policies of Turkey in the late 1990s, just before Erdogan came to power. And you could add to that, of course, the support for Ukraine, which Turkey is currently displaying, which makes very little sense from the, the point of view of an Islamist foreign policy, but it very much makes sense from the point of view of a Turkish nationalist foreign policy. Now, I wanna make sure I'm not misunderstood here. As my uh, writings in the Middle East Quarterly and elsewhere have indicated, I can indicate, I have been one of the fiercest and earliest critics of Erdogan's Islamization of Turkey and his Islamist foreign policy. What I do argue is that I see a shift right now that can only explain uh, by the loss of influence that Erdogan has had following the 2016 attempted coup against him, and what I see to be the rise of traditional Turkish nationalist uh, forces within the Turkish state that have been stepping in to fill this void. Now, uh, that does not mean that Erdogan has stopped doing, especially hasn't stopped saying outrageous things, uh, but it means that there is increasing, there are now increasingly strong forces in the Turkish state that do believe that it was a totally, frankly, boneheaded decision to pick fights with both Israel and Egypt at the same time as Erdogan did. Uh, these people, and I'm talking about the Turkish nationalists in the military and in the state institutions, have no inherent hatred of Jews or for Israel like Erdogan does. Their nat natural enemy or adversary historically has been Russia and not Israel. And I think the rise of uh, this faction to prominence in the Turkish state is something we should very much take into account when designing policy towards Turkey. We could discuss the implications of that, uh, but to return to the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict, I'll get to a third point after the change of the uh, global situation with the weakening of international norms and the change of Turkey's position. I would say that the most important of all has been the change in Armenia's position in this conflict. Uh, as many of you will know, uh, back in uh, 2018, there was a velvet revolution that brought to power uh, Mr. Pashinyan, Mr. Nikol Pashinyan, who was an opposition activist, who initially seemed interested in, a, in restarting peace negotiations with Azerbaijan. Uh, their first meetings in Dushanbe in 2018 apparently went very well, but then something changed. Um, I will very rapidly summarize the changes. Um, in, from 2019, spring of 2019 onwards, the Armenian side rejected the Madrid principles as they were known by the OSCE that had been the basis for negotiations since 2011. Uh, Pashinyan then said that Nagorno-Karabakh should be represented separately in the peace talks, but he also simultaneously uh, said, quote, Karabakh is Armenia, period, unquote. Now, these... Um, Two statements uh, were very provocative. They also make little sense because after all, if Nagorno-Karabakh is uh, part of Armenia, period, then why should it be represented separately in the talks? Um, Mr. Pashinyan's wife also dressed up in fatigues and uh, wearing a Kalashnikov and went for military training this year. Uh, the couple sent their son to volunteer as a, 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 as a soldier in the occupied territories already back one or two years ago. And Armenia started resettling Armenians from Syria and Lebanon into the occupied territories. Now, obviously, uh, we can talk about the rhetoric on the Azerbaijani side as well, that increasingly has been uh, bellicose in the sense that Azerbaijan has said that if negotiations lead nowhere, uh, we are keeping the military option open. But I think the, the major shift uh, that was not in the Azerbaijani side because that position has been there 
on the part of Azerbaijan for quite a long time, whether you like it or not. But the real shift happened in the, in the Armenian approach to negotiations and for the Azerbaijani president and, his, and the leadership. This, uh, they concluded that negotiations were now useless. Um, uh, and at that point, the only factor that was really protecting Armenia from a military confrontation uh, might be Russia. Uh, but what also happened, and I think Armenia made several miscalculations, and one of them was to uh, depend so strongly on Russia while uh, the leadership in Moscow puts a premium on good relations also with Azerbaijan and has made it clear that they really don't want to antagonize Azerbaijan because it is a geostrategical and most important country in the Caucasus. Uh, meanwhile, uh, because the new Armenian leadership came to power in a velvet revolution, uh, I think most of you will know what Mr. Putin thinks about velvet revolutions. He doesn't like them very much, and he does not necessarily seem to mind that Mr. Pashinyan is getting a slap in the face in the conflict. And therefore, the Russian position, which probably was a surprise to Armenia, has been rather clear that as long as the fighting that happens is taking place on international recognized territory of Azerbaijan, Russia is not going to step in directly. That is, Russia is still supplying weapons to Armenia and so on, but it is not yet engaging on the Armenian side. And my guess is that the Russian position is really to wait and see and probably can try to use the conflict to increase its influence on both sides, for example, by trying to insert Russian peacekeepers into the conflict zone. We'll see what happens. It's still early. Now to, to, to conclude on a point about US policy. I think it is quite obvious that in this very uh, intense period of, uh, of warfare, the US policy has basically been uh, even Europeans have been slightly more active than, than, than the US, the Iranians, the Turks, the Russians are, are at a completely different level. Uh, the US failure is not just an immediate one right during, during these, uh, these hostilities. It's been a failure for uh, several administrations to engage seriously in the role the US has as one of the leading mediators of the conflict. I think largely we can attribute this to the feeling that this is a frozen conflict, quote unquote, but it wasn't really frozen. And many of us pointed out that it wasn't and that the situation was shifting rapidly. And I will say that this administration has been very good on Central Asia. It has launched a new strategy for Central Asia that is very well written and was very well received in the region. Um, while in fact, the, the problem is that in order to have a strategy in Central Asia, however, geostrategically speaking, the only way you can get there from the United States and from Europe is through the Caucasus. And unfortunately, there has been nothing approximating the strategy uh, of this or previous administrations towards the Caucasus. Um, uh, National Security Advisor Bolton tried to uh, develop uh, more coherent thinking about the Caucasus and went to the region. But of course, uh, he's no longer there. And the US, in fact, uh, I would argue missed uh, the uh, escalation of this conflict in spite of clear indications that it was taking place over the state. That is not because there are no US interests at stake. I would argue that for the US, the main interest, main interest is to maintain the South Caucasus as a corridor linking Europe and Central Asia. Uh, geostrategically, uh, this has meant uh, helping maintain the independence of the states in the region and making sure that governments in the Caucasus countries are able to make their own decisions. Uh, this is what uh, made the role of 
Azerbaijan and Georgia as the uh, air corridor to Afghanistan in the uh, after 9-11 possible, and which has made possible the development of, um, uh, of oil and gas supplies from the Caspian to Europe, for example. Now, I mentioned Azerbaijan and Georgia because they are more independent countries, independent of Russia, that is, and have been able to play that role, whereas because of Armenia's close relations with Russia and Iran has not quite been able to do so. Um, now, uh, at this point, there is still a, uh, a situation where there is no uh, power in the region that the two parties uh, feel is an honest broker. Certainly, Azerbaijan does not think Russia is one. Armenia does not think Turkey is one. Iran doesn't really have a potential to play that role either. So it is really only the US and EU that could have a role in, in, in being uh, really neutral powers that could help uh, find a solution to this conflict. And I think uh, the operative word here is solution uh, because just a ceasefire and a refreezing of the, of the conflict is not going to be uh, sufficient. It seems to me that uh, we want to avoid a situation where this develops into something like the Israel-Arab conflict or the Indian-Pakistani conflict where uh, you, know, you have a war every 10 or 20 years and smaller episodes in between, but no long-term resolution. There is, it is possible to arrive at a resolution to this conflict, but it's going to need a much higher level of international involvement. Obviously, with the pandemic, with the economic situation in in Europe and the United States, not to speak of the US election and a very polarized political situation, it doesn't seem very likely that this is going to happen. Um, I'll stop here uh, in the interest of time and be glad to answer questions. All right, thank you so much for that. So we have quite a few questions coming in. The first one is, uh, what do you think the US should do here and the EU as well? So I think there are Two parts of that. One part of it is uh, what, you, what should be done right away, and another is what should be done in the long run. I think the key thing um, is preventing escalation, and by escalation I mean a conflict that would um, involve either Russia, Turkey, or Iran directly. Uh, we should remember that the fighting is taking place right on the border of Iran. Uh, there is a mobilization of ethnic Azerbaijanis in Iran along the border in support of Azerbaijan, which has forced Iran, which, whose government has traditionally supported Armenia, to, to, you know, to pretend to be supportive of the Azerbaijani case and to, to if you will, uh, make statements that they support you know, the restoration of Azerbaijan's territorial integrity. That's an interesting thing in and of itself. But uh, there are many different scenarios in which either of these three powers could be involved. So that obviously is in the U.S. interest to avoid a major conflagration among these Eurasian powers. But I think uh, going back to what I, what I said, I, I think what is absolutely key for both U.S. and European policy is not, is to, to in, if you will, turn this crisis into an opportunity to actually arrive at a solution. This has been festering for 30 years, and this conflict has really been preventing the development of US interests in the broader region uh, in, in creating, if you will, a stable land bridge between, between Europe and Central Asia, which is in the US interest. It's enabled Russia and Iran to, 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 to play nefarious roles in this region by exploiting the weakness of the countries and their um, conflict with one another. It's in many ways prevented Armenia from fully developing into, into a partner for Western countries, and it's forced Armenia into this unhealthy relationship with, with Russia. Um, I think what is key is not is again, as I said, not to refreeze the conflict along some kind of new ceasefire line that's not going to solve anything and is just going to 
uh, we're going to set the clock again and there's going to be another war in five or ten years. So it's really about a serious effort to, to arrive at a final solution. And a solution, by the way, to this conflict is not rocket science. There, are, there have been a number of different peace plans that have been on the table, they've been negotiated. They all operate essentially on the basis of returning to Azerbaijan the occupied territories that were never really Armenian populated and they were never part of Nagorno-Karabakh itself. And, uh, deal, and, and giving the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, itself a, uh, an interim status that would at some point in the distant future be finally resolved through uh, some form of referendum. Uh, but the key, I think, is to arrive at a situation in which occupied territories are returned, uh, peace is uh, agreed, there is economic, a start of economic interaction between the different parties in the region and this is all doable but it requires security guarantees that can only be uh, done involving uh, the united states and, if, and and financial and economic integration with europe that is only possible by an eu intervention i mean we can talk about this in much greater detail but i think that's what we're what we're talking about here thank you so much um we mentioned that there's the natural resources as well as the land route uh, that's at stake here, but is religion also a major factor in the struggle? Well, uh, as I suggested, if you look at the uh, the way outside powers are involved, it is. You have Iran traditionally supported supporting Armenia, and you have uh, and you have Israel traditionally supporting Azerbaijan. So in that sense, it doesn't appear to be quite quite to the contrary. This is, like I said, either an exception or a repudiation of the old the idea, the Huntingtonian idea of clashing civilization. Now this uh, already from uh, from the early days of the uh, of the conflict, the religious leaders of both Azerbaijan and Armenia have been very careful to make sure that this is, to make the point this is not a religious. Now, obviously there are there are elements on both sides, uh, and I would say primarily there is an element on the Armenian side trying to portray this as a clash where the West should really be supporting Christian Armenian against Muslim Azerbaijan. Um, but obviously, I think the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the involvement of Turkey has, if you will, made it more natural on some sides to draw that type of argument, make that kind of arguments because of the uh, increasingly Islamist policy of, of uh, President Erdogan over the, over the past many years. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, if you look at what this conflict is about, it's, it's, it's identical in many ways to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine or between uh, Russia and Georgia in the sense that this is, a, this is a conflict over territory. This is a conflict between two states that make claim to the same territory. It's at the basis of an ethnic conflict. Uh, sure, I mean, you could turn it into a religious conflict if you wanted to, but uh, so far there is, there, is, there is on both sides a, uh, a, a, an, at least a, an, an effort to, to prevent it from being subsumed on the broader civilization. So how has the current conflict affected the Israeli relations with Azerbaijan? Well, I think that's a hard to say. I don't think they have been affected very much. Um, I think that uh, Israel, uh, let's put it very frankly, if Azerbaijan buys weapons from Israel, uh, it shouldn't come as a surprise that they were intending to use them. Um, so I think in, in that sense, I don't think that there is anything particularly surprising to Israelis. Um, and I think, uh, However, obviously, that uh, there are forces in Israel that do not necessarily think that this is a particularly wise solution. There are all, there's always been a tension in Israel between uh, 
a certain kindred feeling towards the Armenians because of the joint historical experience of being subjected to genocide. Uh, on the other hand, the, uh, from the Armenian side, there has been this, um, if you will, the, uh, an intention to conflate the, the genocide issue with the Karabakh issue. After all, uh, the issue of the Armenian genocide didn't happen in the Caucasus, it happened in the Ottoman Empire in what is today Turkey. Um, and I think from the Israeli side overall, there has been an ability to keep these things apart and to realize that the strategic interest of Israel has very much been in developing its close relations with all the secular Muslim majority countries in Central Asia and Azerbaijan. This is not just Azerbaijan, this is also Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan and others, uh, which are, you know, the very idea that you have uh, uh, in this, what you could call, if you will, the northern part of the Middle East, you have these uh, countries that are, you know, can appear to be peripheral in a Muslim world, but historically, they were actually very important in the development of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the history of the Islamic religion. Sufi brotherhoods came from Central Asia, you know, the, the collection of, uh, of hadiths of Bukhari were the, is the second most holy book after the Quran, and after all, Bukhara is in the middle of Central Asia. So this is not a region that is historically irrelevant. To the Muslim world, but it is a place in which you have uh, vibrant Jewish communities and governments that, that are uh, opposing every form of anti-Semitism and are happy to have a close relationship with Israel long before the likes of Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates decided to do that. And I think that, that has been the Israeli perspective on this, on this region, and that I think uh, very naturally continues to be the, Israel, the, the main Israeli interest in this area. So in your opinion, is, is the peace talks achievable and how might Nagorno-Karabakh be governed in the future given some sort of Azerbaijani victory? Well, that depends what that victory looks like. I think there are two aspects here. One is what is the easy picking and what is hard, militarily speaking, and the lowlands where the low hanging fruit, if you will, from an Azerbaijani military perspective. The, the, the territories that the Armenians capture the easiest back in the 90s are also the ones that have been the easiest for the Azerbaijanis to take back. Uh, so when you get up into the mountains, into Karabakh itself, and also territory that, you know, after all, occupied territories, even if some Armenians have begun to call them liberated territories, quote unquote, they all know that these were not traditional Armenian lands. Uh, their parents didn't live there. But when you get into Karabakh itself, I think that gets to something much more difficult for the Armenians to just give up. And that means it's going to be militarily much harder for Azerbaijan. Now, I, I am not a military specialist. I can't tell how the military, you know, technological superiority of Azerbaijan is going to play out or how much there is going to be an international intervention if the war gets into Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, what I do think is that uh, at some point, and it is going to get more difficult. And uh, I mean, I would personally be surprised if Azerbaijan is able uh, to get all the territory back. Then there is a difference between, like I said, even, uh, even in terms of uh, the way the international community, if there is one, approaches this conflict between the occupied territories and Nagorno-Karabakh. And I think obviously for Nagorno-Karabakh to have any form of rule, there, that, that assumes that the conflict hasn't really gone that far into Nagorno-Karabakh itself. Assuming that I think the um, first, if the question is if I think that a, it's achievable, I think in theory, yes, but in practice, the international environment right now is not very conducive to a serious solution. 
you could see something like a, a Turkish-Russian uh, agreement of sorts uh, emerge in one way or another. It's not, it's not impossible. I see a danger that the West is being completely sidestepped here because of the way the US and the EU have not been uh, able to uh, insert themselves and to be a factor in this conflict. But I think um, uh, the Azerbaijani position has traditionally been that they would uh, respect some form of uh, self-government for the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh. Obviously, there is the issue of the Azerbaijani minority that existed in Nagorno-Karabakh itself back in the day. Um, but that, so there are many questions that remains to be resolved. But I think some form of uh, a, a real solution will require uh, a, that there be a uh, very high level of self-rule for the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, and B, that there be very serious security guarantees from the outside for this. The problem, of course, is in today's world, whose security guarantees would Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh trust? And under what conditions? Especially since now they, they've tended to, for 30 years, they trusted the Russians, and it didn't seem like that paid off very well. So uh, I think there, there, we're in a situation where there is not a lot of trust for any institutions or any foreign powers, and I think that's a, a serious complicating factor. Understood, thank you. Um, is the UN involved at all in solving this conflict? The UN back, I think, was it 1992 or 93? You know, uh, this was the uh, immediate post-communist post situation where a lot of conflicts were breaking out in, um, in, uh, in the Balkans, uh, in, in the Caucasus, elsewhere, and the UN basically subcontracted the, uh, the, uh, this conflict to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. And therefore, we have this uh, weird situation with the so-called Minsk group, which is uh, named uh, thusly only because there was supposed to be a peace conference in Minsk uh, in one of the years of the early 1990s that, of course, never materialized. But it's still called the Minsk group. And you have uh, Russia, uh, the US, and France being co-chairs of this group. And they don't seem to be able to agree on much in general, uh, let alone about how to go about um, this conflict, but no, the, the UN has a very little, if any, of a role. Uh, so what percentage of the occupied territory is Armenian? If there are re relatively few Azerbaijani people in Nagorno-Karabakh, how feasible would it be to relinquish this territory to Azerbaijan? So that depends on what you mean by Armenian. If you mean uh, what, what I was referring to earlier, yeah, why I'm saying that is because both Azerbaijan and Armenia have uh, published uh, huge books explaining how all of these territories historically belong to them. Uh, for example, if you go back just a month or so to Mr. Pashinyan's BBC Hard Talk interview, he talks about how for 6,000 years this has been Armenian territory and so on. The Azerbaijanis would make similar claims. Uh, but if we go back to the more recent past, so to speak, and uh, uh, I think the, uh, what's clear is that if you look at one of the detailed maps, you'll see that Nagorno-Karabakh was majority Armenian. It had about an 80, 75, 80% Armenian majority and a, and a smaller Azerbaijani population. Uh, the territories surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh that were occupied by Armenian forces in basically 1993-94 were almost entirely populated by ethnic Azerbaijanis and a lot of Kurds as well, especially in the Western parts uh, the little sliver of land between Karabakh and Armenia was heavily Kurdish populated. Uh, but there were essentially no Armenians there. Although all those people were removed. They were ethnically cleansed back in the early 90s and they're living as internally displaced people in Azerbaijan ever for the past 30 years. So um, 
in that sense, uh, I think the, the answer is that, you know, uh, and one of the reasons why there has been relatively little of an international outcry over what's going on is that, like I said initially the, uh, in my remarks, that Armenia bit off more than it could chew. It, uh, it had benefited from this tendency by the international community, particularly the Western world, to view Armenia as a victim of the conflict, which had more to do, again, with the history of genocide than anything else. Uh, and also to some extent to the uh, Soviet and Azerbaijani policies in the late Soviet period, which also uh, uh, led forced some Armenians to flee from parts of their homes in, in Azerbaijan. Uh, but uh, as soon as the Armenians uh, emptied these large territories of Azerbaijanis, the international perceptions of the conflict shifted and Armenia essentially never was able to gain acceptance for the fact that it, it had just taken over these territories and evicted people from it. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, Azerbaijan, by the way, has been spending 30 years explaining to the world that these are occupied territories where no Armenians traditionally have lived. And I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, why the international uh, reaction so far has been comparatively muted, which obviously could change if the war moves into Nagorno-Karabakh itself and populated areas there or onto the territory of the Republic of Armenia. Well, thank you so much. I apologize for going over our time a little bit here. We have so many questions coming in. Uh, before we leave, can you just give us some more information as to where to find some more of your work? Sure. Um, the, uh, our institute has a website called silkroadstudies.org. That's silkroadstudies.org. And there is a news uh, section on the right side of the screen in which we have a link to basically to resources on the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict where we have collected some of our, our, our work uh, uh, that's been published both by myself and by contributors to our journals over the past several welcome anybody's uh, interest in that and also to contact us if they have further interest. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for speaking with us today. Uh, unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. For our viewers, please join us at 3 p.m. Eastern for our weekly update with Ashley Perry. And thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, no. Good.